Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Sooner or later you're certain to meet In the bedroom, the parlor, or even the street There's no place on earth you're likely to miss Her kiss Sooner or later in sunlight or gloom When the red candles flicker She'll walk in the room And the curtains will shake And the fire will hiss Here comes her kiss And the moon grows dimmer Kiss of the Spider Woman, performed by Cheetah Rivera, who died yesterday at the age of 91. That's from the original Broadway cast recording of the terrific musical Kiss of the Spider Woman, debuted on London's West End back in 1992. A year later, it was on Broadway and toured across the country, including Los Angeles in 1996. For those of us who had a chance to see her in that and other great roles, you never forget a giant of the American stage, but of course also a frequent performer on television and on recordings as well. Cheetah Rivera died yesterday at 91, but we had the opportunity just over a year ago in December of 2022 to talk with her about her career. The occasion for the conversation was her in Southern California to perform at the Sagerstrom Center in a show that looked back on her career and allowed her to show uh, even uh, very late in her life the tremendous talents that were still there. We're going to reprise that full interview for you now. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm just a Spanish tamale, according to me. Right off the boat from the tropics far, far away. Which is kind of funny, since where I come from is Allentown, PA. Spanish. Okay, may I'll be Spanish. Right after I've married Alberto. I'll be the toast of Chichi Castanengo. For more than 70 years, that's 7-0, she has headlined Broadway productions just like Bye Bye Birdie, from which we hear Cheetah Rivera's performance of Spanish Rose, part of the original Broadway cast, as she has been in so many incredible productions. In Chicago, she's performed in both of the lead roles to great critical acclaim, multi-time Tony winner with three of those honors, 10-time Tony nominee, noted for television and film appearances as well, Kennedy Center Lifetime Achievement Award, Presidential Medal of Freedom for from President Obama, living legend of American musical theater, Cheetah Rivera, joining us again on Air Talk. Cheetah, thank you so much for being with us today, and congratulations on all these many honors. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what keeps you going on the stage? What attracts you to continue to perform as you've spent these seven-plus decades doing this work? Well, uh, it's just uh, the audience and the, the stories, and uh, it's, it's just a part of me now. You, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's just, a, you know, what else would I do? <laughs> yeah, and and tell us about what got you started because you grew up in Washington D.C. and as a girl, I know you you started dancing. You went to an elite school to to learn dance. Did you ever? Was there ever anything else you considered, or was this your path from your earliest memories? Well, uh, this was my path from my earliest memories. Uh, um, I was a, a tomboy, and I had. Tremendous energy, and my mother decided. Uh, my mother, the hero of all of this, uh, she decided to um, to channel my energy, and she put in put me in in a ballet school, and that's how I I got started. I just danced my way through life. <laughs> um, I obeyed my teachers, and um, this is what I got. You've worked with so many tremendous uh, musical creators, you know, people like Bob Fosse and and Jerry Herman, um, you know, just so so many of the giants of of the American stage. And you know, when you think about who you've worked with over the years, I mean, is there anybody left out that you didn't have a chance to work with who's a, a musical theater giant? It seems like everybody you've had a principal role in at least one of their productions. Well, I, I came along at a, at a good time. I came along at what we call the golden age, and that was when they did fabulous shows, shows that were successful, and uh, they produced an awful lot of wonderful ex-dancers that turned into choreographer-directors, and I was lucky enough to be there and chosen by them and um and the and the shows were were exciting shows and different and so um i i came along at a good time well let's listen to your performance of the title song from the candor and ebb musical kiss of the spider woman cheetah rivera won the 1993 tony for best performance by a leading actress in a musical Or later you're certain to meet In the bedroom, the parlor, or even the street There's no place on earth you're likely to miss Her kiss Sooner or later in sunlight or gloom When the red candles flicker, she'll walk in the room And the curtains will shake, and the fire will hiss Here comes her kiss Cheetah Rivera 
When you're working with a composer lyricists like Kander and Ebb, people of that stature, how much time do you spend in preparing to perform a role, hearing their thoughts about what what the song represents, or of of the writer of the book, what the character represents? How much of that work goes on in pre-production? Well. Um, um... It, 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 as much time as it requires is uh, is, is usually um, uh, the amount of time, um, and we have uh, four weeks, four weeks or six weeks, um, in order to put a show together, and uh, it's concentrated and it's focused. And um, you're all in the same room for the same reason. So when you're focused like that, you get things done. And it's got to be very, um, at times, tumultuous, ultimately gratifying when it all comes together. And you've got not only a hit, but one that creatively connects and critics uh, connect with it as well. Can you describe that feeling when you've spent such an extended period preparing for it and it provides that kind of payoff? Well, you feel when, when, when you're doing it, you're, that's the only thing that exists. Um, and um, you're really surprised when um, something doesn't work or, um, you know, you just expect it to work because you've made it genuinely your own. Um, it's been your breath and your, um, your calling um, all, 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 all that time, all those four weeks so um you're 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 satisfied let's say you're satisfied and uh when the critics come and they get it and which they don't always guess <laughs> and um uh and uh you know and you're you're satisfied you're just pleased and you go on to um stay with it for a year or maybe longer, you know. Well, you've originated so many roles on Broadway, and then when they become iconic shows and are adapted to films or um, they end up being revived in later years, to what degree do you feel protective of a particular character that you were the first to perform? Well, you you do feel that. You, you feel... Um, you, 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 you more or less stand out on your own. Um, you, uh, you see it, um, in the theater, um, it, 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 things are done, um, pretty much the same. Um, a, a personality comes into a part and, um, they bring their own uh, personality, and um, but it's not that different. It's not that different. So you um, you do feel a little selfish towards um, um, that being your um, create your your creation. You know, um, it's 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 but it's it's a it's a it's a quiet thing. 
you 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 know it yourself, but you don't go around saying I did this part, <laughs> or I did that part. You know, um, you just quietly say to yourself, "Oh, I would have done it another way." Cheetah Rivera done it the same way. <laughs> you know, whichever, whichever. Cheetah Rivera with us on Air Talk. I, I'm just going to share some of the titles. I mean, this is extraordinary. From your first appearance, appearance as a replacement dancer in Guys and Dolls, Can Can in 1953, and then West Side Story, Anita at the Winter Garden, a Bye Bye Birdie uh, three years later, Chicago 1975 as Velma Kelly and nominated for Tony for Best Actress as you had been for Bye Bye Birdie, Jerry's Girls um, with um, the Jerry Herman score there, nominated again, Tony Best Actress, Kiss of the Spider Woman um, from Kandra and Ebb, winning the Tony for Best Actress, Nine, nominated for the Tony, Cheetah Rivera, The Dancer's Life, nominated for yet another Tony, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, The Visit, nominated again for a Tony, Sweet Charity, uh, Chicago in two 2012 uh, in uh, a cameo role there and uh, all the way, uh, or I should say that was for the film version. And of course, most recently seen on the big screen in Tick, Tick, Boom as a Sunday Uh legend. I mean, it has to be so gratifying for you to have all these young artists look to you and pay homage to you for the extraordinary, not just lengthy career, but the indelible performances that you've given us over these these decades. How does that feel for you? Well, it feels as though you're doing your job. It feels as though you're being an example and uh, and hopefully a good example. Um, so I, I, I thoroughly enjoy um, performing for young um, performers and being a, a, an example for them. So that 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 is my obligation now. We're talking with Cheetah Rivera, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient from uh, President Obama. Uh, she's also the first Latina and first Latino American to receive a Kennedy Center honor. Uh, she's received so many other awards, the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Tony Award as well. Cheetah Rivera, thank you so much for being with us. And most importantly, Thank you for all these great performances. I've had the pleasure, as I'm sure so many of our listeners have, to see you on stage with the energy, with the talent, uh, with how you make every role your own. You are a gift to the American Musical Theater and to us as members of the audience. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for saying those, those, those words because that means an awful lot to me. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. The living legend of the American musical theater, Cheetah Rivera, joining us on Air Talk. Come on, baby, why don't we paint the town? And all that jazz, I'm gonna Cheetah Rivera, conversation from just over a year ago, December of 2022. We lost Cheetah Rivera yesterday at the age of 91 as we listened to her performances.
Thelma Kelly from all that jazz, the Bob Fosse hit. This goes back to 1975. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about an LAist investigation. Two of our reporters joining us to talk about what they uncovered in California higher education. We'll be back in just one minute. And all that jazz, I hear that Father Dip is gonna blow the blues. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at Theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. We speak next about an investigative report that's a collaboration of two of our journalists, Adolfo Guzman Lopez, higher education correspondent, and Jackie Fortier, our senior health reporter for LAist, looking at legislation that was passed in California requiring all public universities uh, through their health centers to provide abortion medication to students. But has that actually been happening? That's exactly what Jackie and Adolfo looked at. Adolfo, please share with us what this bill does. So uh, it was known as Senate Bill 24, authored by Southern California State Senator Connie Leva. And it required public universities in the state, so that's the Cal State University system and the University of California system, to offer abortion medication. The pills. And so that's what it required. It uh, it was passed a little bit before COVID. COVID kind of postponed its implementation. So the requirement went into effect in January of 2023. All right. And Jackie, uh, just uh, to describe for those who are less familiar with the two dose, the two different medications that are taken a day apart, you know, share, share with us um, what the health centers, what the clinics are supposed to yeah, so a medication abortion is uh, a, a two doses of two different drugs. Uh, they're oral medication, so it's not it's not a surgical abortion. Uh, they're medical medical uh, abortions make up over half of the abortions in the U.S. They're statistically very safe. The first pill you take uh, the first day, and it basically uh, blocks a hormone from making the pregnancy continue. And then the second that you take uh, the the next day, usually at home. Uh, empties the uterus. And so the first one is given in the in the clinic office, is that right? And the second one's taken at, at home? Yeah, it's a prescription. It can be given in the clinic office. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Okay. And, and so do we know to what extent uh, prescriptions are being filled by the campus clinics for the medication? 
we don't know that number specifically. We looked more at outreach. So we know that uh, just 12 university campuses uh, are, are not really providing any outreach about this medication to students. Under SB 24, like Adolfo described, uh, campuses have access to $200,000 to provide medication abortions to students. And it's been in place for a little over a year now. Uh, and they can use that money on either the cost of the medication, on any real kind of clinic upgrades. And they are accountable for how that money is spent. But they can also use it on outreach. And we found that there many of them just aren't doing that. So they're offering it all seem to be in compliance with the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the law we're talking about. Is that right? Exactly. And so one of the things that we asked ourselves as we were looking at the websites for the student health centers at the UC and Cal State campuses is to what extent these campuses are putting that information on the websites because we know that electronic searches are really how people get information these days. And so when Jackie and I, when Jackie created the spreadsheet, we were looking at it, we were surprised at the wide variation. So you had campuses like Cal State San Bernardino where we could not find medication abortion on their student health center website. A couple of other universities too, UC Merced, UC Santa Cruz, no mention whatsoever. So they had right. it, but they weren't letting students to, know they had to, it. To, you know, we were assuming at that point that they were following the law by offering it, by stocking it in their student health centers. So you know, we asked ourselves, well, if students don't know about it, is, it, is, <laughs> is the law even effective, right? So that's why we started to ask our uh, uh, people who we reached out to, faculty, students, and also administrators. And so we found a range, like I said, from these campuses that didn't mention it to other campuses like UCLA, which has a really robust website for gynecological services. They include medication abortion, but not just the steps of what's going to happen when you decide to get it, but also support like psychological services. And when we showed UCLA's website to some of the other campuses, faculty at the other campuses, they looked at it and they said, wow, this is really good. I wish our campus was doing this good of a job of informing our campus community about it. In the piece that you've done for LA, is you have interviews with students, some of whom have paid hundreds of dollars uh, to get uh, the prescriptions elsewhere, not knowing it was available right there on their campus. And maybe you can share a little bit uh, what those stories entail. Yeah, I talked with uh, Deanna Gomez, who is a student at Cal State San Bernardino, and she was, you know, really, she was just working so hard to be there. She was paying her own tuition. She worked 60 hours a week on top of taking a full class load. And this was months after the law was in place and the campus health clinic, you know, should have been offering medication abortions. Uh, she found out that she needed one. She didn't know that they were available right there on campus. She ended up driving, you know, 300 miles. She missed a month of school. In order to get the care that she needed, she paid uh, almost $600 for just the medication. She spent hundreds on top of that in gas and then missed work. It put her graduation in jeopardy. She did end up graduating. She did end up needing the care she needed. But to say that she was frustrated when I told her that she could have gotten that care on campus for free is an understatement. She was just almost in tears at how angry she was at her campus. Well, and the good thing is that those who now are hearing about this and reading your story know it is available. So hopefully that word will get out 
through student uh, bodies and that they'll be able to, you know, students will be able to access it who need it. There's a lot of information on the website, on Elias, and the story. We tried to, you know, give as much information as possible. We also found out that there are reciprocity agreements. So if you're a, mm-hmm. a, a UC student, you can get student health services, abortion medication if you decide to, at another campus. So if, you know, there's a wide range of support at the different campuses, uh, Students can go elsewhere if they want and and access this. Uh, so service. that would be like a student maybe on break that is returned home. There's a closer campus yeah. than the one they attend when school is in session. They could still get the medication there. Yeah, and we visited uh, we visited student health centers, and to they're very different, right? They're very different in the level of support and their size also. Um, the sizes of the campus and everything. So if a, right, if a student feels more comfortable going to one over the other, they can do that with, as long as they stay within the same system. And um, what's the response from the campuses, from the health centers that have not publicized this, that you can't find the information, you'd have to actually ask? What, what have they said in response to this? I was a little surprised when I went to Cal State San Bernardino and I, you know, presented this uh, student to the uh, the story of the student to the health center director and uh you know she was a little flippant she said you know we do have it available and uh students uh can find out about it we've had a few different presentations that we've made to students it's almost all oral communication though so if the student doesn't attend the presentation because hey they might be working for example they don't know that it exists on the other hand some of the campuses i talked to uc merced and uc santa cruz said yeah um, you know, we our website is in development. Other campuses said, yeah, we'll listen. We'll take in all kinds of input about our website. We are making improvements. They also said that they're getting the informa- information out in other ways, maybe small meetings with uh, cultural groups or the Women's Center. So, you know, it's not all, you know, dire. It's, it's a work in progress at some campuses, it appears. All right. I thank you both for coming in and talking about the investigative work you've done on this piece, which you can read at LAist.com. Jackie Fortier is LAist senior health reporter. Adolfo Guzman Lopez, LAist higher education correspondent, collaborated on the reporting here. The piece uh, that you can read is titled, California Universities Are Required to Offer Students Abortion Pills. A lot just don't mention it. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. There's one statewide ballot prop that we'll be deciding on. It's Proposition 1. We're going to debate it. Hear the pros and cons when we come back in just a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. 
It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. Just a reminder, as we cover the upcoming March election, and we've been talking with LA, all the L.A. County District Attorney candidates, George Gascon, the current DA running for re-election, joins us next hour here on Air Talk. We turn our attention now, though, to the lone state ballot proposition on the March ballot. It's Proposition 1, a six-and-a-third billion-dollar bond measure to construct mental health and substance abuse treatment facilities, also to construct housing, and it redirects money from the so-called millionaire's tax to fund mental health into uh, this uh, particular plan for constructing treatment facilities and housing. Joining us to uh, provide the pros and cons of Proposition 1 is Susan Eggman, Democratic State Senator, who represents a district in the western San Joaquin Valley, an author of the bill in the state legislature, uh, which voted to put this on the ballot. Thank you so much, Senator Eggman, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for asking me, Larry. It's so, nice to be here. Uh, let's talk, first of all, about the decision to uh, issue a bond, should voters approve it, to pay for this. Why go through a bond measure for this instead of taking this money out of the, the regular state budget? Um, well, so the last, since the pandemic started, right, a, we got, there's a lot of federal money, so was a, and tax returns were much larger than we thought. We had a state surplus at that time to the budget, and I serve as the chair of the uh, uh, Budget on Health and Human Services and work closely with the governor as it is on most people's minds. Like, what is one of the biggest issues people are talking about right now is the issues around mental health and homelessness. So at least $5 billion has already been prioritized for housing and the construction of facilities through a program called the B-CHIP program. In addition, as you as you recall, we had Project Room Key, Project Home Key. All of those are already gone towards the rehab of existing facilities. So the state has already invested a lot of one-time funds going into to get all of this jump started. But now as we're looking to, and there's two parts of this again, right? There's the policy part about how we deliver mental health services and then this bond part, which is really going to provide us uh, a stream to be able to construct a lot more, right? So over the last few years, we've been working towards that. And then this will be the last big boost to be able to provide the housing that we know we need, right? This will provide about 10,000 additional units throughout the community. And again, these are the promises that were made when we deinstitutionalized de people uh, way back in the 60s, right? That we're going to have all these community supports. And the original um, Mental Health Services Act went towards providing some of those supports. At this point, we're saying, all right, one of the things that we know by, by evidence, by every kind of public opinion poll we have, we need more funding for more beds for people to be able to have a safe place to stay who currently find themselves on the streets. And um, we know that when we passed the Mental Health Services Act 20 years ago, the average rate of income that people were being, that counties were receiving was, you know, in the hundreds of millions. That now, this last year, I believe was over $3 billion. So we know the amount that was in the millionaire's tax that went to fundamental health increased exponentially in the last 20 years. And we don't have the outcomes to show for it. And I think that's where we are now, right? We know we need more funding for beds. So we're doing that through the bond component. But we're also asking voters to help us 
take a good look at ourselves, right? What we're doing is not working. So it's time to redo that whole system through outcomes and measures and really evaluating what we do need in every county with a lot more state oversight uh, and help. Um, and, and, how, and so how do we reprioritize that money now? So more of it is used for workforce. You can use some of that money for it to be able to pay for ongoing housing. And we're going to focus on the most seriously right. ill uh, through something called uh, whole person care, which is the really wrap around whatever it takes to be able to meet somebody where they are. Um, and a larger component of that will be for, for those folks. We're so talking kind of what we're talking about and why. It, so it's an addition to what we've okay. already done through this we're talking with california state senator susan eggman who's author of the bill which uh, was passed uh, to put on the ballot by the legislature it's ballot proposition that the legislature uh placed there and the only state ballot proposition that voters will be deciding also with us is susan shelley who's vp of communications at the howard jarvis taxpayers association and a member of the editorial board of the socal news group which publishes such news newspapers as the Orange County Register and the L.A. Daily News. Susan Shelley, we appreciate you being with us again. Um, why do you think this is is the wrong way to fund services like this? Well, Senator Eggman mentioned that the counties are receiving more money than they did previously, but of course their costs are much higher. So I'm not sure they're ahead. And this robs the counties of money in four different ways. First, it takes, instead of 5%, of the Mental Health Services Act money, the Prop 63 money, it takes 10% for the state. And then it has a requirement that they take this services funding and divert 30% of it to housing contracts. And then you lose, the third way is you lose the federal matching funds for health care when you do that, when you fund it for housing instead of for services, you lose the federal funding. And then they're building places for treatment that the counties will be responsible for running, and they'll have to use some of their funds for that. So they have less funding, more responsibilities. This is going to create pressure for tax increases, and you're going to see those on your ballot. So this is really robbery of the counties for this very important mental health services funding that the voters approved. What about the argument that um, there just needs to be so many more facilities for mental health and drug treatment and more people hired into the field to do it and that counties aren't really equipped to do it, that it requires the state to coordinate the development of those facilities? This has always been a county responsibility, not a state responsibility. And even if we all agreed that this needs to be done, which, of course, we do, whether borrowing $6.38 billion and paying it back, and of course when you pay it back it's 10 or $12 billion with interest, and you're committing future generations to be forced to pay that over their own needs. When you do that for unspecified places, which is what the legislative analyst said this is doing, it's a, essentially a blank check and the state will decide later what they're going to build and where is that the best way to do this? And the housing component, according to the LAO, this is going to build up to 4,350 units of housing, including 2,350 set aside for veterans. There are That's only 20% of the veterans who are currently homeless. And this despite the fact that there have been bonds before there was a bond called the California Veterans Housing and Homeless Prevention Bond. Was that money well spent? Why do we still have this serious problem 
when the taxpayers have stepped up again and again. And one more thing about the housing, it must comply with the housing first principles, which means that no one can be denied housing based on the fact that they are actively using drugs. So they're being, the voters are being told that this is treatment, not tents. But in fact, you are putting buildings with people who are still using drugs and still in the throes of addiction in residential neighborhoods with a streamlined ministerial process and billing the taxpayers for it. I think this is just not well constructed. We're talking with Susan Shelley, member of the editorial board of the SoCal News Group and VP of Communications at the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Also with us is State Senator Susan Eggman, who's author of the bill, which became Proposition 1. And joining us from the California Business Roundtable, Executive Vice President Brooke Armour. Brooke, thank you for, for being with us. Um, why is this the way to go, particularly with interest rates as high as they are right now? Um, speak to the timing, if you will, of, of issuing a bond measure with interest rates in the market, what they are now. Sure. And thank you for having me. I think from our perspective, the homelessness issue has become a business issue. Um, we are, our offices and our office buildings are people's homes and our their, our front doors are people's homes. And we know that we have to start acting now. The Mental Health Services Act is 20 years old and it is not working. It does not provide accountability and oversight to counties. And an audit in 2016 showed that counties had $2.5 billion in unspent funds in from the Mental Health Services Act. What this does is it provides accountability and transparency so that existing tax dollars are used more effectively and more efficiently. Is this the entire solution to the homelessness crisis? Absolutely not. But it is part of a continued effort by the legislature, the governor, the business community, and the mental health community to bring together comprehensive reforms. Homelessness is a very complex issue. This is not the only solution. And is it a perfect solution? No but it provides essential oversight and essential uh, transparency to the process so that we're not wasting tax dollars while people die on the streets. Are, are, are you confident in the oversight that's been provided on the funds to this point that have been spent by the state of California to, to deal with drug and, and mental health treatment? No, I think that it the you know the um, state auditor in 2020 showed that um, there are very few reporting requirements and reports done about how existing tax dollars are being spent. We have the income now; we need the outcomes, and that's really what we're focused on with Prop One and a whole host of other issues. Susan is absolutely right. We have to address the housing issue. We have to address these other issues that are. Comp- are combining and compounding the problem, but we and housing first is not necessarily the best approach, but it allows us to get those dollars where they need to go in a more efficient manner, bring state oversight and state accountability so that you don't have a patchwork of 58 different counties trying to figure this out there's one central person who is responsible. So what would you say to those concerned, this issue that was raised by by Susan Shelley, that with the housing first um, 
viewpoint on this, that you would get people in the housing constructed who would be dealing with serious life challenges and uh, that there could be significant damage to the properties that would fall on taxpayers to deal with, um, people who would be looking for a safe place to move into and wouldn't feel comfortable being in places where people are dealing with serious uh, mental health or, or drug crises, um, and, and that that could undermine this effort to provide safe housing for people in need. What, what would you say to those folks? Well, Prop 1 does a very important thing in uh, reforming the Mental Health Services Act to identify and allow uh, substance use disorders to be funded through those tax dollars. Uh, that was not allowed in the first uh, iteration 20 years ago, but I think we have all come to understand that there is a much uh, greater connection and greater through thread on what some of the causes of homelessness are. Certainly, um, housing first can't be housing only. There has to be services, there has to be safety, and there has to be consequences if there are, um, if, if communities aren't safe. And that is, I think, part of the, what, why we support this is it goes in line with the governor's care courts, with uh, further reforms to our criminal justice system that the legislature is working on this year to ensure that we have the ability to create consequences and um, provide the incentive for care, for okay. treatment, and then for to transition into permanent housing solutions. We're talking with the California Business Roundtables, Executive Vice President Brooke Armour, one of the proponents of Proposition 1, the statewide ballot measure. Also with us is Paul Simmons, former Executive Director of the Depression and Bipolar Alliance of California. Paul, thank you for being with us. What are your concerns about Prop 1? Well, they are too many to list, quite honestly. Um, Prop 1, uh, from the perspective of those who are actually going to be affected by it, which is the actual mental health consumers, the substance use disorder consumers, um, and the organizations that are per currently providing services under the MHSA. Um, there are big issues with essentially converting this, the mental health system into the 40s and 50s model of pushing more and more and more people into involuntary locked facilities, which by the way, the, um, the actual bond measure that was put into this was originally said unlocked voluntary settings, and that was taken out about 10 seconds before it was finally uh, voted on. I'm a little bit exaggerating there, but not much. Um, I think this is really a cynical ploy for the governor to claim that he's solving the homeless crisis, and it's not It's not only not going to solve it, it's not even going to help it. It's likely to make it even worse through some of the machinations that are going to be going on. And In terms so, of accountability, yeah. yes. I was just going to ask, so what is uh, taking people who currently are receiving treatment or in the queue to receive treatment, are, are you saying this has a negative effect on them? It will because uh, they're going to be deleting. This will remove a billion dollars per year, sum total with all the other factors, from mental health services each year under the MHSA. Uh, first, it's 30% going to other, uh, other programs. And by the way, substance use disorder is already covered under the MHSA. 
However, it's restricted to people who have mental health issues and substance use, which is quite honestly the majority of them. All right. So uh, I, I, I see that as being uh, huge. Uh, there's 30% off. Then the expectations is the MHSA funding next year is going to uh, be decreased by another 30%. We're talking 50% out of actual mental health services that are being designed and implemented by local community counties, by the organizations of the communities who really know the needs of these people and give these people services before they get into a position where they become uh, homeless or uh, have severe uh, issues uh, in, in, in a really severe mental health crisis. So what we're doing, what this would do is essentially take prevention money and throw it into the pound of cure. Uh, it's a lot more expensive. It's damaging to the people receiving the services. It's eliminating, by the way, the line item for innovation. This is being toted uh, as a modernization act. And yet, innovation is being taken completely out of the picture. Okay. Yes, we need to take. may be able to spend some of this reduced funding on innovation programs, but it's no longer part of the, it would no longer be part of the system. I need to break. We're talking with Paul Simmons, a former executive director of the Depression and Bipolar Alliance of California. He's in opposition to Proposition 1, the statewide bond measure of more than $6 billion on our March ballot. Susan Shelley is also in opposition, and we're speaking with two proponents of the measure, uh, Democratic State Senators Susan Eggman of the Western San Joaquin Valley, who's author of the bill that became Prop 1, and Brooke Armour, Executive VP of the California Business Roundtable. We'll come back in just one minute. Proposition 1 on the March ballot, a more than $6 billion bond measure. We're talking about its pros and cons. Joining us on the Pro side is Democratic State Senator Susan Eggman, who's author of the bill, which has become a Proposition 1 for voters. Brooke Armour, Executive VP, California Business Roundtable. And in opposition to Prop 1, Paul Simmons, of uh, formerly Executive Director of the Depression and Bipolar Alliance of California. And Susan Shelley, member of the editorial board, SoCal News Group, and VP of Communications at Howard Jarvis taxpayers. Uh, let me go back to uh, Senator Eggman to respond to the concerns that have been expressed. Uh, first of all, Paul Simmons' point about um, that these could be locked facilities uh, that are constructed where where people would not have a choice about their own treatment. Um, and Paul is referring to some other, I think, legislation we've done. Yes, we did add, add some secure facilities in, but that is just to provide a full continuum of care. Right. I mean, you need to be able to treat people in the least restrictive setting, but you need a full continuum of care to be able to move people up and down. Right now in my county, if a child has a mental health crisis that requires a secure facility, they have to travel some 300 miles away. That's not good for the child. That's not good for the family. Um, the goal is to always have people in the least restrictive setting and to be able to, again, if you don't have that continuum, then people get backed up in the ER, then people get backed up and there's not that flow of housing. Um, and if I can speak just a minute for about the housing first that people keep yes. raising as an yeah. issue, these are all folks that are going to be in treatment, right? These are people who are being supervised and in treatment uh, through the county. And as um, uh, the business roundtable pointed out, we also have now, we've been working 
again, for a couple of years on all of this, we now have the care court in place. We also now have, I mean, people talk about taking from this system. And again, this is going to be 35, 30% for housing interventions, you know, and prioritizing kids and chronically uh, homeless. Another uh, 35% for that FSP. I think I said whole person care before, but the full service partnership. Again, these are caring for folks who could be in care court and who could be moving down from a, a locked facility. Uh, and then another 35% for that health services and supports, including uh, supporting workforce. Yes, there is some innovation money that's been removed, but that is going to the state level. So every county is not trying to do it themselves. And again, there is going to be a full implementation process across here to let people, everybody in the community have an input about what is working, what is not working, what do we keep, what do we, what do we get new, and you'll have a lot more state help and guidance, and also uh, depending upon our uh, academic universities to really be able to measure what we're doing and how we're doing it. So Quick, this uh, idea that, go uh, ahead. No, yeah, finish your point about the accountability, I'm sorry. So the accountability will be much more because right now we have no idea. Uh, and and when, when the counties do a report, it's basically just like reporting what they've done, not what their outcomes are. Okay. And the only money they're counting is the MHSA money. We also know in the last 20 years, we went from a, a community population that had over a 20% uninsured rate to now we're at about five. So, so much that was just thought we'll just pay for that with MHSA can now be billed for and pull down those federal dollars, pull in those private dollars, and again, be able to really take into account when we're doing the accountability and oversight, all of the money that's going in and what okay. the outcomes associated with that money is. We're so, talking with... with Okay, I'm sorry, I just need to get in Susan Shelley for a final word here. That's Susan Eggman, California State Senator, author of the bill that's become Prop 1. Susan Shelley, uh, final thoughts on on uh, Proposition 1 and why you think voters should vote no on it. Because it robs money from the counties that they need for current mental health services, and it routes it to bureaucratic nonsense in Sacramento and more of Project Room Key essentially, housing with services down the hall that no one is required to use. It will wreck neighborhoods. It will waste money. It will rob people of services that they currently are using and badly need. Are, are you concerned, though, that you know, we've got a tremendous shortage in mental health care personnel, in drug treatment personnel, and that this might be a way to be able to beef up uh, the workforce for people providing those services? Well, it's perfectly valid to spend public money beefing up the workforce, but it should not be borrowed money. It should not be paid back over 30 years with interest to the tune of $12 billion. That's an ongoing cost, and it's not appropriate to use bond funding for something like that. All right. And we have a listener question. Uh, Michael in Granada Hills wondering about whether there's anything to assure that people stay in the programs. Uh, Senator Eggman, a quick response on that. Uh, what 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 keeps people in the program once they go into housing? Well, we now have a full a full continuum of care. We passed this, right? This is a, a, the implementation of the services. But in the last few years, we've also done care court, which will involve a court to be able to get people to stay in treatment. And if that doesn't continue to work, if they do need involuntary, then we also redid uh, what it means to be greatly disabled in the state of California. So we put into a place a lot of the components. Okay. Now we just need to be able uh, to provide the services. And the bond is not used for workforce development. That is part of the redo of the policy. 
Okay. But there is money coming from the taxes that would go to workforce development, correct, from the millionaire's tax? That's the millionaire's tax. That yeah. is already in existence. No one's talking about touching that. We're just saying how you'll use that money that's already been allocated. All right. I want to thank all of you for being with us. That's Democratic uh, State Senator Susan Eggman of the West San Joaquin Valley, Brooke Armour of the California Business Roundtable, Susan Shelley of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, and Paul Simmons, former executive director of Depression and Bipolar Alliance of California. You have a chance, of course, to vote on Proposition 1 on your upcoming March. March ballot. Coming up in our second hour, current Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon is with us. We've been hearing from those who were challenging him. Been a lot of criticism of his tenure as DA in his first term. We're going to hear him respond to the critique and also bring up issues about his tenure that others haven't raised that he says show the kinds of strong performance he's had in his first four years. That's all coming up here on Air Talk in the second hour on LAist 89.3. Support for LAist comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, we're going to have some fun and talk about the Stanley Cup, the water bottle that has become a sensation with people spending hundreds of dollars to get their collectible version of it. We'll talk about some of the past fad status symbols, just like the uh, quencher, the bottle that Stanley puts out. That's later this hour. And we'll talk with District Attorney George. George Gascon, as part of our series, talking about candidates for the office that he currently holds. But we begin with what's happened to Palm Springs' real estate market. L.A. Times writer Jack Fleming wrote a fascinating story a few days ago about how Palm Springs City Council passed a limit on the number of permits that homeowners could have to do uh, part-time rentals of their property. And when that cap was put into effect, it so limited the ability of homeowners to rent out their properties for short-term stays that it uh, turned the housing market there upside down. Reason being that many people pay their mortgage for the homes they buy in Palm Springs by doing short-term rentals. And without the ability to obtain one of those permits for short-term stays, they simply wasn't economically feasible for them. 
So in uh, the article that Jack writes for the Los Angeles Times, it shows that some of the most desirable neighborhoods of Palm Springs are 20 to 40 percent above the limit for caps already because some were grandfathered in. And uh, as a result, those are communities where there's a long waiting list for people to get those permits to offer short-term stays in their home. Joining us is Chris Thornburg, economist and founding partner at Beacon Economics. His firm also closely studies the Inland Empire and Coachella Valley Economics. Chris, good to have you with us again. Um, what do you know about this phenomenon in Palm Springs? <laughs> well, not all that much specifically. I, I saw the article like you did. And, you know, there's an old saying about journalism that what you have to do is simplify and exaggerate. Um, and I think that this story has been highly simplified and highly exaggerated, uh, as, as the case may be. Look, we, we know that local housing demand across the state, particularly in these tourist-centric areas, part of that housing demand has been by investors who go in, buy various properties up, and then, yes, make a little uh, company for themselves, basically renting out um, single family to folks who would prefer a house to a hotel room in these various areas. Um, that is part of the market, but it's not what I would call a dominant part of the market. The vast majority of single-family homes in Coachella Valley are still owned by the people who live in them and don't rent them out on a regular basis. So, in a sense, this story has the basic issue that um, it is mixing up two big events going on simultaneously. One, of course, is the big movement uh, against Airbnb-type investments in many economies across California. It certainly isn't exclusive to Coachella Valley. But at the same time, we also have the issue with the fact that the mortgage rates have gone from 25 to 7.5% over the last two and a half years, which, of course, is another big part of the overall story in terms of homes, home sales, and home pricing. So um, I appreciate what the story is saying, but I do think you may these two giant issues. We're talking with economist Chris Thornburg of Beacon Economics. I'd like to hear from Palm Springs residents what you've seen in the way of real estate as a result of the cap on permits to offer short-term stays at a homeowner's location. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. But I'm particularly interested in hearing from our many Palm Springs listeners uh, what you've experienced with the housing market there. And I'm sure for many of the residents who are there, either half the year or full-time residents of Palm Springs, probably happy to see the cap on short-term rentals in effect because of concerns about partying at the houses, uh, changing the character of residential neighborhoods with people coming and going, uh, using the the, the properties essentially as as hotels. I'm I'm sure that that is of concern to some residents. But I'd be interested in hearing uh, the thoughts of Palm Springs listeners. Whether you think the cap is good, whether you think it it has uh, hurt housing prices and that concerns you uh, more than the quality of life issues that are raised by the short term rentals. What do you think? 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at la. 
KFIS.com, please include your location and your first name. Uh, Jack Fleming in his piece says uh, that a number of Coachella Valley cities like La Quinta, Cathedral City, and Indian Wells have pretty much banned new short-term rental permits with, with very few exceptions. So they have an even more stringent policy than that that was passed in Palm Springs where they limit per district of the city the number of of uh, short-term rental permits that can be issued. Palm Springs residents rejected a ban on short-term rentals with 68% of voters back in 2018 voting no on that. So you've got really uh, two distinct homeowner groups that that are opposite each other, really, because you've got people who um, really support the ability to do short-term rentals. Uh, these are people who might be part-time owners who are counting on that uh, short-term rental fees to be able to help pay their mortgage and see uh, short-term rentals as being a vital part of, of the economy for bringing tourists in. And then others who are perhaps longer-time homeowners, they're concerned about the quality of life and what they see as the charm of Palm Springs which can be intruded on by too many people doing short-term rentals. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Chris, it it seems, though, um, pretty obvious if you've got a community where there's high demand for short-term rentals. So I'm thinking of a Laguna Beach, for example, or... Um, uh, you know, Santa Monica, Venice, uh, um, other cities in the Coachella Valley, places, Santa Barbara, places where tourists really like to go, that a lot of people who would look to buy a house there are thinking about subsidizing the cost of that through short-term rentals. So if you get critical mass in that, how, how could that not have an effect on the value of properties? Oh, I, I think it does. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with that with that statement at all. It probably does push up the price of these homes a little bit above what it might be if that kind of investment activity was was um, strictly uh, uh, excluded from the local marketplace, as the case may be. But again, one of the big questions is how much that, for example, has contributed to the huge surge in prices we've seen over the last three years in California and really across the United States. Um, the surge in home prices we've seen, uh, and it's been enormous. Again, from 20, mid-2020 to mid-2022, you saw a 40% increase in prices across California, one of the greatest surges in home prices. And to be clear, that was everywhere. Yes, the people in Coachella might want to tell themselves that that 40 45% increase in prices was all driven by these investors pushing up prices. But to be clear, we see exactly the same trends in places that are not tourism-dominant um where that it isn't that much of an effect so again it's 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 easy for folks in those areas to see that being driven by this airbnb effect but it, it, again when you look at many places you're not seeing that let's it's, talk with with Deborah in Venice, who not only lives in an area where there's high demand for short-term rentals, but I understand she has a home in the Coachella Valley. Uh, thank you so much, Deborah, for being with us. Um, what are you seeing in, in the way of short-term rental and the trends? Well, I've been very involved, and I've gone to numerous hearings uh, regarding short-term rentals. And I will tell you, it's very obvious it's becoming more and more of a business. It's not the owners themselves. 
uh, although if, if it is the owner, then they're running their own business. They don't live in the house. And um, you see where more and more large companies are taking these homes or several homes in an area and turning it into a short-term rental. Um, at the hearings, the, the individuals, so-called individuals representing their home, get up and they'll say something like, well, I have 20 or 50 employees I have to worry about. That isn't a short-term rental. That's a business. And um, the worst thing for the residents, yes, it destroys the neighborhood. The noise, and the, believe me, the party people, they don't care about the noise. The traffic of people coming and going, uh, if there's an event there, the traffic of all of the rental stuff being brought in and taken out, and the dangerous driving at night because some of these events end at 2 in the morning, and you can hear very radical driving. So it's a, it's a really terrible okay. problem. I appreciate Deborah. I appreciate you being with us. I, I wonder, though, how many in the Coachella Valley would be actual businesses as opposed to people buying the property to live in part-time and, and rent it out other times because there are limits on the number of, of days that you could have, even if you if you put everything together for how long you could rent out a house in Palm Springs, for example, I think you'd be capped at, at six months' worth of days. And that's if you got all month-long people um, renting. And, you know, I think it's hard necessarily get people who are going to spend a month on a short-term rental. So that's like the max if you lined up six short-term, month-long rental people there. Uh, we're at 866-893-5722. Drew in Palm Springs emailed, short-term rentals are much less important than keeping housing affordable. If the market doesn't change in favor of renters, all the nice restaurants and spas won't have enough people to work there, which is already increasingly the case. California needs rent control, Drew says. Caleb in Pasadena emailed, I read the article in the LA Times and was happy to see it happen. In a housing market where long-term renters, typically millennials, millennials, myself included, he says, are not seeing a future as a homeowner. And then there's the homelessness problem. It's rather obnoxious that there are actual homes that are empty unless a tourist wants to use it for a few days. I don't want to be a lifelong renter. That's Caleb in Pasadena. Uh, Alex in West L.A. says the effect of short-term rentals on the long-term rental market is also notable. They raise rent prices for everyone. Chris Thornburg, your response to the listeners' comments. Yeah, no, that's it's really interesting because, again, there's a whole other side of this debate. The, the folks who are, are worried about the parties and the driving, like we just heard your caller, um, they have a real concern. Anybody who's lived next to a party house understands um, those issues. But to be clear, VRBO, Airbnb actually have fairly stringent rules about using an Airbnb as a party property um, to avoid these kind of problems. How well they enforce them is a different issue. The second argument, as you just heard from that email, is this idea that these short-term rentals drive up housing costs. And we actually did a study on that, not so much for Coachella Valley, but for San Luis Obispo, where this is also a, a controversial issue. And, and what we saw there was very clear. Um, air, these kind of short-term rentals tend to be exclusively in single-family homes. The housing shortage problems in many of these tourist-based areas, whether it's San Luis Obispo or Coachella Valley, that's based on the lack of building apartment buildings. Take the Coachella Valley. In the last five or six years, they've expanded their rental, multifamily rental stock by about 600 units, which is absolutely nothing 
given all the demand for labor out there at the restaurants and the spas and everything else, the problem with housing affordability is that the area will not allow multifamily to be built. Um, this is a, a very profound issue for the Coachella Valley, something I have been saying to them for years and years now. But that should not be confused with, of course, this conversation about single-family rentals. Actually, the number of single-family rentals in California has been declining slowly over the course of the last seven or eight years. The idea that more single-family homes are, are used as investment properties actually is not true, and that's just come straight out of the data. So, uh, again, that's more perception than reality. Chris, as always, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Christopher Thornburg, economist and founding partner at Beacon Economics. Uh, his firm does analysis of the Inland Empire and Coachella Valley economic trends. We're talking about the housing market in Palm Springs and how it's been affected by caps on permits for short-term rentals. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. We're interviewing all the candidates for Los Angeles County District Attorney. Today, it's the sitting DA himself, George Gascon, who's with us. We'll talk with him when we come back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking with all the candidates for LA County District Attorney. And joining us now is LA County DA George Gascon, who I first talked with many, many years ago when he was a top official with the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, since that time, he went on to be the district attorney for San Francisco. He headed the Mesa, Arizona Police Department and, of course, four years ago was elected to his first term as L.A. County D.A. He's seeking a second term. There's a field of 12 total candidates. D.A. George Gascon, good to have you back with us. Good to see you, Larry. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, let's talk first of all about what you see as your accomplishments during this first term. Uh, what are the top couple of things that you think your office has successfully achieved? Yeah, look, I, I think there are many things that we have accomplished. And, you know, the, 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 the uh, one of the things that I find most interesting is you know, I can go into a lot of the endorsements that I have, the, you know, the party, the labor, but uh, the, the L.A. Times did a, an incredible job, I believe. Uh, they interview everybody in the field. Uh, they fact check all of us. And they came back and strongly endorsed me. And, and what they, they talked about is not only the work that we have done in order to reform, uh, begin the reforming process of an office that, quite frankly, has been very conservative for many years, uh, but also the fact that, you know, crime is going down again and, and uh, you know, the filing rates are consistent with the past. But we'll, the work that we're doing is so much more thoughtful. So, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, we, we went through a very difficult time during the pandemic, right? A, a period of time where uh, there was a tremendous amount of displacement. Uh, you know, we were working from home in many places. Our courts were partially shut down. And, and even during that period of time where we implemented a lot of reform efforts, uh, like stop using the death penalty, which was very controversial in the office, uh, looking at how we handle juveniles, because we don't think a 16-year-old should be in prison with a 50-year-old. 
uh, looking at law enforcement accountability, frankly, which are almost non-existing in the county, but at the same time dealing with traditional crime stuff. So when we began to see a problem with organized retail theft, we immediately started working with our partners. We work with the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, and the CHP, and we prosecuted. Right now we have over 100 cases from last year. Uh, we uh, saw the problems of hate crimes, and you know we immediately got into with community and our other partners in law enforcement, not only addressing the education and prevention part of it, but also prosecuting the cases. We started to see the fentanyl problem again. We brought in other partners, including the health department, law enforcement, and we're addressing those issues. Um, but you know we also look at things that had the the offices completely neglected in the past. You know the biggest. Theft crime in the county continues to be waste theft, right? Over a billion dollars a year that are taken from vulnerable workers. But, you know, it's something that impacts our entire community. It impacts good employers that that are trying to play by the rules. It impacts our tax base. Uh, And we have gone, you know, we created a labor justice unit, and we are focusing on major violators of waste theft. When it comes to the environment, another area that the office really never made it a priority. Now we've gone after major polluters like Atlas Metal, who's poisoning the the soil on the water next to Jordan High School for generations, to uh, you know to other companies like uh, uh, sent uh, uh, the 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 company had the three days fires in Carson, you know, completely polluting the air and going after that company on the principles. Uh, we're also doing different things with victims. You know, we, we're create, creating a rapid response system. We created a mobile app so the victims can actually go immediately and seek uh, and, and obtain services when they need them. We work legislatively uh, as sponsors to legislation to facilitate uh, forensic interviews for kids and, and deal with victims of crime, especially families that have young people. So there's a lot of work that we're very proud of. We're talking with Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon, who's running for re-election. Uh, some of the, uh, your opponents uh, support a number of the reforms that you've brought in, maybe not universally, but a number of them. And one of the consistent critiques is about the way that you've reformed the office. Uh, they allege that you came in, you didn't ask for input from people who'd been doing this work for years, and and that for you yourself, having never been a prosecutor, that that was, that was um, egregious on your part not to take the professional input from those people on how to reform the office, and that you started with blanket policies on many of these reforms as opposed to allowing some discretion on the part of prosecutors. What, what's your response to that? Look, I mean, I, I came into an office that extremely conservative for generations, right? We we thought the death penalty more often than many southern states. Uh, we prosecuted hundreds of kids as adults. Uh, we looked the other way when law enforcement was committing egregious misconduct, criminal misconduct, like, you know, lying, um, using excessive force. So there were a lot of things that we were looking at, um, and all the policies that we created, actually, we had working groups of experts in the area, lawyers that have been in the area for years, former judges, um, we have former prosecutors. But the reality is that when I came into the office, I came into a place where the culture was very, very against us things. You know, death penalty alone, you know, the, the, there was a tremendous attachment to the death penalty in the office. Uh, so it was very hard on the early stages to go seek 
you know, the, the, the support for things that they were so clearly against it. Having said that, um, you know, we have evolved from that place. Uh, the management team is a, is a different management team. Uh, the, what I came in with, we have, I've hired now over 85 new lawyers that are coming to the office that want to do the work that we have. We have a lot of people in the office applying for promotions. In fact, we had uh, we had an opening for promotion. We had about 300 applicants. So there is an evolution also that has taken place in the thinking within the office that is very, it's a very different place today than where it was before. And I know that you often hear, uh, you'll hear them say, well, there were 97% of the prosecutors that voted against you at the beginning for recall. But, but what they don't talk about is the, the fact that that was a, a very limited in scope, the way that people were asked the questions, who was given access to the voting, who was not. You know, there's an office of about 92,000 people. So, you know, there are a lot of complexities that are not being discussed. So do you think that the morale is generally good in your department? Look, I think morale is a, is a, is a very tricky thing, right? I think that uh, I was in policing for almost three decades. Uh, I was in the LAPD for almost 27 years. And I don't recall ever morale being good in the LAPD when you talk to the union, right? It was never good. It didn't matter whether it was Bill Braden or Bernard Parks or Daryl Gates, right? Um, so the, the issue of morale has a tremendous amount of subjectivity to it. How is it interpreted? I can tell you that uh, the people that we're promoting, the people that we're hiring are coming in. Their morale is very high. Uh, they, you know, we have a lot of work. You know, the 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 the... The industry model, and when I say industry, I'm talking about, you know, policing, prosecution nationwide, uh, is increasingly hard to attract new people into the roles, right? And so the workloads are very significant, and that's not unique to the L.A. County Sheriff or the LAPD or the New York Police Department, frankly, or my office. So there is a there is an evolution in the workplace. Uh, and then we came from about two years where people were working mostly from home, and now they're having to come back to the office, right? So there are many components to this. And then, you know, if you were pro-death penalty, your morale is going to be very low. Well, and, and so the death penalty is the law in California, even though no one's been executed since 2006. Voters had a crack at this just a few years ago and voted to uphold the death penalty. So what led you to decide that you wouldn't prosecute the death penalty in Los Angeles County, despite what voters had democratically chosen? Well, I mean, it's an interesting point, Larry, because actually voters in L.A. County democratically chose not to have the death penalty, right? So it did pass um, barely passed with statewide uh, election, but actually in L.A. County, it didn't. So, you know, arguably, if we were following the voters' will in L.A. County, then we would not engage in the death penalty. And increasingly, look, they're, they're, we're becoming a minority in the country, right? The death penalty is going away, and there are many reasons why the death penalty is going away. Number one is because it doesn't increase the safety of our community. Number two, because it is extremely discriminatory in its application. And we have seen that in L.A. County. During the prior administration, there were 24 men of color that were placed in death row. By the way, most of them had severe mental disabilities, which today, under the law, by the way, uh, you could not do so. Um, so there are many pieces to this. When you look at the exonerations, right, we have now exonerated eight, and we'll be exonerating shortly a couple of more people. Some of those people, the office thought the death penalty. In fact, we have one particular case. Uh, Maurice Hastings spent uh, almost 40 years in prison, 
He went to prison. Um, he was convicted of murder and rape. Uh, he maintained his innocence throughout the entire period. In fact, he did not get parole because part of the parole process is the uh, person coming out for parole. They have to say that they were sorry, right? And Mr. Hastings said, I'm not sorry because I didn't do it. He tried to have the office review his conviction twice. He tried to get the uh, DNA tested. The office told him twice, two administrations, that the DNA was missing. We tested the DNA. He turned out to be innocent. So here's a man that we wanted to execute. We're talking with George Gascon, Los Angeles County District Attorney. Let's talk about enhancements that are sought in cases you prosecute. When you started, you said you were not going to prosecute enhancements. You've shifted on some of the enhancements um, and and uh, guns particularly. What led you to make that shift? Yeah, look, I mean, as we evolve and get a, a management uh, team, that I can trust to give him more discretion, which I do now totally. Uh, in fact, those decisions are being made now at much lower levels. I don't get involved in whether we're going to have election enhancement or not. We have a committee that looks at these things. At the very beginning, when I came into the office, it was a problem because that wasn't in place. And what we had before was a blanket policy of always alleging all the enhancements. Um, and that clearly led to excessive incarceration and then in some cases, quite frankly, uh, wrongful outcomes. So we are at a different place today, three years later, and, you know, uh, people can ask for, you know, for exceptions to some of those rules, and, and they're granted, uh, you know, very often in some cases. But it's being reviewed by people that are actually looking at the entire picture and not simply saying we're automatically going to go to the most punitive way that we can. There is a discretion and a thoughtfulness to the way that we approach the work that wasn't there before. Uh, let's talk, uh, Mr. Gascon, about um, juvenile prosecution. Earlier you said um, it wasn't right, essentially put 16-year-olds in prisons with 50-year-olds. But we have a juvenile system, and a number of, of um, your challengers have made this point, that doesn't really, isn't equipped to deal with the most heinous, the most serious of offenses that can be committed by, say, 16 to 18 years old, including... Uh, not just murders, but but torturous murders, rapes, other uh, particularly heinous crimes. So what is the answer? If we don't have a juvenile system to really handle that and you're not comfortable with those cases being tried in a regular uh, court, what what's the answer? Well, I mean, look, the answer is when we have the appropriate cases, again, much like with enhancements, we are, you know, we entertain transferring a young person to adult court when it's appropriate, and we have. There's also an important point that, that you don't hear from my opponents, that actually from the time that I was elected to now, the law has evolved, right? As of last year, um, we actually tried to transfer someone that I really thought it was uh, deserving of the transfer. It was a heinous double homicide, uh, and the court rejected the transfer, and the court was right, by the way, and we looked back at the law, and I was wrong. The courts today are required on the juvenile transfer to evaluate not the nature of the crime committed, but whether the juvenile can be rehabilitated. And the reason why the law requires that today is because the law is, is, is based on the reality that a human brain is not fully developed until we're about mid-20s. 
and also that the science tells us today that a human brain can be easily reprogrammable, meaning rehabilitated um, with the proper interventions. So in this particular case, which I agree, and again, I did not make the decision. I, I let the committee make the decision that this case should be transferred. We went up in the court interpreting the law today correctly, deny our transfer request because there were reports by psychologists and psychiatrists that came in uh, that indicated that this juvenile could be rehabilitated. So even the conversation around transfers is being uh, is being today uh, based on an erroneous interpretation of what the law is today. That's, it's hard for me to imagine you'd have experts who come in with any case, though, and say someone at that age is not rehabilitatable. But the issue isn't it when the when the young person would be released under juvenile convictions because they could be let out when they would still be a threat to society, whether even with them being rehabilitatable. Right. And that's where the law comes in. And, you know, there is a way to keep them in, in custody beyond the release time. Now, it's a year by year uh, evaluation. It's more like the European system, right? The European system in general turns most uh, European countries, you know, sentencing generally don't go beyond 20 or 25 years. But you can be extended, but it's a year-by-year basis based on an assessment of your uh, the dangerousness. I, I want to close on the issue of property crime because your critics and, and the people that are running against you, their theme largely is that you have swung the pendulum to the point where you appear, in their view, to be sympathetic to people committing crimes, to man- incarceration, concerns about racial disparities, and and that your emphasis on that includes a tolerance for people committing crimes, and that that has made it easier for repeat offenders to commit those crimes, and it's led to less respect for the law and its enforcement. Your response to that? Yeah, look, I think this is where the L.A. Times is such a wonderful job, right? The L.A. Times took all these claims and debunked them all. You know, we are prosecuting these cases at very similar rates to what we had in the past. We are using the current state of the law. We're looking at repeat offenders, and where appropriately, we're being very aggressive. Uh, and when you look at the, the, the sort of the 10-year pattern of crimes, uh, there are hiccups, and, you know, we have some increases, and now we're going down. And then when you compare us to the national picture, let's take organized retail theft. I challenge anyone to name your city, Houston, Miami, Atlanta, and say, or, you know, Google, organized retail theft, and you're going to see the same videos that you see about LA. The problem is there are certain things that occur on a national scale. We're not in a vacuum, and it's not necessarily connected to any policy that I have. I want to give you an opportunity in closing to make your case to voters why you think they should support a second term for you. Look, reforming a system that has been broken for so many years, or some would argue not broken, but actually designed to do what it did, takes time. When you look at the the objective indicators, whether crime is up or down, whether the prosecutions are up or down, you see that actually we're very consistent with what has been occurring in the county for the last 10 years. But at the same time, we're doing the work in a very different way. We're not seeking the death penalty. We're not looking to put 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds with a 50-year-old. 
We're looking at exonerations. We are supporting law enforcement when they need to be supported, but we're also holding them and ourselves accountable. Thank you so much, Mr. Gascon, for joining us. We appreciate it. My Thank you so much, Larry. George Gascon, Los Angeles County DA, who is seeking a second term in office. We're talking with all the candidates who accept our invitation to join us in conversation on Air Talk. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. The latest must-have status symbol is a water bottle. That's right. Stanley Cups, not not the trophy you get for winning the NHL playoffs, uh, have taken the country by storm. A hundred-year-old company, Stanley, is seeing its revenue shoot through the roof since young women have taken to their product, fueled by Target collaborations and TikTok influencers. You you might have seen the posting of the burned-out car uh, that uh, a young woman had in which her Stanley Cup was right in the center console, as, as I believe, unscathed, and the beverage, the chilled beverage, was still cold, even after her car had been destroyed by fire. And then uh, Stanley actually uh, bought her a new car uh, as a thank you for her posting about how her uh, her uh, Stanley quencher survived the fire. I want to hear from you. If you're ever someone who really got excited by uh, a fad like this, there was some sort of a product craze that took the nation by storm, and, and you found yourself taking part in it. We're at 866 893 866-893-5722 or you can email us at uh, atcomments at las.com please include your location and first name but I'd like to hear from you if you actually found yourself in the grip of, of one of these fads there was something you just had to have give us a call 866-893-5722 I was one when I was a kid I'll tell you about that a little later but with us Amanda Mull staff writer for The Atlantic who writes about consumerism in her column Material World. Amanda, so good to have you with us again. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me back. Let's talk about uh, the Stanley Quencher. Um, Was it the posting of that video of the burned car that, that launched this or something else? No, that video of the burned out car actually comes fairly late in the Stanley phenomenon. Oh. Um, 
Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of points at which people like like new groups of people sort of clue into what is going on. But this has actually been been happening since. Well, the origins are theoretically in 2017. Stanley has been making this product for a long time. Um, and a a product recommendation blog that's like fairly small, not not a huge website, um, that's run by a couple of a couple of women um, that has a, a following of uh, disproportionately Mormon moms um, came across the product in 2017, re- recommended it to their readers, and their readers ended up really liking it. So um, every time they would post about it, it would sell out. Um, this this particular cohort was just like really into the product. Um, 2019 came along. Stanley, as a company, was just not really into producing it anymore. They weren't marketing it. They weren't putting new versions on their website. So um, the buy guide is the name of the of the website. The women who run it said, "Hey, sell." like a several thousand of them to us we will sell them directly to our readers and that worked so well that stanley um in 2020 when it got a new marketing executive said okay like there's clearly a market here um so why don't we lean into this if people want to buy these products let's make lots of them um and let's really figure out what they like about it and do more of that so in about 2020, you get this sort of array of colors. You get lots of sort of limited edition colors, seasonal colors. And this is like a phenomenon that's that's pretty common across like not just the consumer market and all kinds of consumer goods, but in water bottles. There's lots of colorful, mm-hmm, colorful water sure. bottles out there. Um, but the something about the Stanley just really connected with um, disproportionately an audience of women. And it has sort of taken off from there once TikTok got a hold of all of these colors. <laughs> Target did a big promotion. And how how much did the Target promotion uh, uh, help to even boost sales further? Well, I'm not sure how much it helped to boost sales, but it definitely helped to boost uh, public perception. Um, those Target sales happened at the end of uh, of 2023, like either late December or even early January. One of those incidents happened um, of this year. So before any of that happened, Stanley was already uh, sort of projected for the year to uh, sell. million worth of product, which is a huge number. And it's especially huge when you consider that just a few years before their revenue was like $73 million as a company. So before we had any of this, um, any of this sort of viral demand that we, we all saw on social media, we had a huge spike in sales in a very, very (laughs) short period of time. I I didn't even know that Stanley made water bottles until this most recent uh, part of the craze. Cause you know, I think of him is tape measures and saws and, you know, things for, for uh, home improvement or, or people at construction sites. Right. I think that that is the impression that a lot of people have, but Stanley actually holds one of the oldest patents for um, the vacuum sealed mechanism that helps keep um, water cold in their water bottles. They have been doing this, uh, this insulated beverage container thing for a very, very long time, long before many of their competitors ever existed. So you might be more familiar with the, the sort of thermos style. Yes. Yes. The thermos ones. Yes. Yes. That is that before the Stanley quencher that was their biggest product um and it was often something you'd see on construction sites something that held coffee 
um, or, um, or other drinks for people who worked outside. Um, and, uh, so they've been, they've been sitting on this technology for a while and, uh, it found a whole new audience now. <laughs> We're talking with Amanda Mall, SAP writer for the Atlantic. She writes the column material world. Jeanette in Seal Beach says when Larry mentioned the Stanley, I looked at the water bottle I'm drinking out of that my daughter got for me. It's a Stanley. I guess I'm part of the craze too. Yeah, Jeanette, you didn't even know, but hang on to it because uh, Amanda, as I understand, um, sometimes they get swiped because uh, of their popularity. Well, anything that has a logo on it that indicates that it's like a highly sought after product um, is sort of uh, up for grabs for in the minds yeah. of some people, I think. Um, we've seen some situations uh, that, that, that have uh, gained some attention online where people have shoplifted them from from Target or from other retailers that sell them um, it, it, with plans to resell them online. Um, they are not like, that's not like the best way to make a living probably. They only cost $45, which is expensive for a water bottle <laughs> yeah. but in the grand scheme of things, not not like something you make a living on as a as a thief. Uh, but they, they do go missing sometimes. Uh, Leslie in downtown Los Angeles says, I used to be a shopaholic back in the day. I would have bought a Stanley cup in every color, but now I abstain. That's my new fad. <laughs> Leslie, thanks so much. 866-893-5722. I want to hear from you. Uh, what particular fad, uh, 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 consumer product that you just had to have at some point in your life, something that you felt like uh, other people had, you wanted it, you didn't want to be left out. 866-893-5722. Mine was when I was a kid riding my bike around Los Angeles, and I'll tell you what I was in search of. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about the Stanley Quencher water bottle, which is tough to get because it's in such high demand. It's the latest consumer fad. And uh, to get bottles at certain points, you've had to go on resale sites like eBay and pay a multiple of the retail price to be able to get your own. The Stanley Quenchers coming in a variety of different colors, which, of course, has driven demand for people who are completists and want to acquire a full set. I'd like to hear from you. What particular consumer product, what fad item that you pursued at some point in your life? We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. When when I was a kid, um, I was in elementary school, it was a status symbol to have auto parts stickers on your notebook or even on your bike or on your backpack. Uh, you know, this is a time when car culture in Los Angeles was really big and you'd have, there was a big market for aftermarket parts and for customizing of vehicles. So we boys 
uh, had this sort of competition who could get the biggest of the stickers or the rarest of the stickers. Like there was a big Goodyear one that you could get or, uh, you know, Fram oil filters or Champion spark plugs, uh, all, all these different stickers that the parts companies used as promotional items. So we'd ride our bikes around to the auto parts stores because at that time there were a bunch of independent ones. They weren't all consolidated into O'Reilly's and, and things like Napa. Um, and so we would go to all these different little independent auto parts stores and try and talk the clerks into giving us stickers. Well, the, the stores got wise and they started charging for them. And, you know, we didn't have any money to pay for auto parts stickers. So the fad came to an end because the auto parts stores priced themselves out of it. Um, you got to have kids with money if they're going to be paying for it. But anyway, for a while, that was the big fad. And you'd come to school Monday morning with the latest stickers to be able to show your friends. And sometimes you'd make sure you didn't even take the uh, backing off of it. You didn't even expose the adhesive because then it could be tradable for other stickers. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. A recently viral status symbol was Costco's 157-piece Le Creuset set for about $4,500. Dozens of pieces of enameled cast iron cookware are in that Le Creuset set. Uh, Apparently, it's so heavy, according uh, to Michael, our producer, that it's delivered to your home on a wooden pallet. Wow, that is an expensive status symbol. $44.99, that's the price of the Le Creuset set. Amanda Ball of The Atlantic, are you familiar with that item? Yes. And it's sort of a, that's sort of a dream item. I love to cook and, and the idea of having like a full kitchen array of Le Creuset just dropped off in your driveway uh, sounds fantastic. Yeah. So apparently that's that's one that uh, Costco has seen tremendous popularity. Uh, let's see. We have a listener comment. This comes from uh, Nick in West Hollywood. I was ravenous to acquire one of the gaming devices, and it was a measure of work to finally get one after several scams. I had to have one. Totally worth it. That's Nick in West Hollywood. Um, our Matt, our senior producer, said as a millennial growing up in the 90s, one big one I remember were uh, Tama, Tamagotchis. Is that how it's pronounced? I'm not familiar. Tamagotchis. Tamagotchis. Yeah. For those unfamiliar, they were a handheld digital pet. A uh, unit was just a small egg-shaped device with a tiny screen. When you turned it on, uh, an egg... Um, would appear on a screen, eventually hatch into a small pet that you had to feed, play with, and take care of. The amount of effort you put into doing so would determine the outcome of its life. I never had one, but many of my friends did, and I was always jealous. Uh, that's of the Tamagotchis. Honorable mention go to the rare and retired Beanie Babies, a status symbol of the 90s. Uh, also, uh, Matt argues having your own phone line uh, as a kid growing up. All right, 866 893 Five seven 
2-2. Cliff in Carson City, Nevada said, for me, it was a blue Adidas jacket with white stripes down the sleeve. It looked so cool with my puka shell necklace. Cliff, I can picture (laughs) you. Absolutely. All right. 866-893-5722. Jimmy in downtown Los Angeles said, the fad that everybody had to have when I was growing up were Beatles boots. At the time, they were literally everywhere. Jimmy, I remember that fad. Absolutely. Uh, Orlando in San Jose emailed, when I was in elementary school in the early 70s, yo-yos were a fad everywhere. Everyone had one. I had a couple. Some of my friends had huge collections of yo-yos. Even the teachers at recess would take theirs out and play along with the students. Oh, that's great, Orlando. Thanks so much. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And uh, Michael, our producer, said you would get knockoffs of status symbols, um, uh, like something called a dinky dino, uh, which uh, apparently he had it was a knockoff of a Tamagotchi that, that he would have. And that's something we should talk about, Amanda, because uh, sometimes there are other, you know, if you can't afford or can't get a hold of the status symbol, there will be other companies who will come up with knockoffs. Oh, absolutely. That's a huge thing right now. Um, TikTok has dubbed these products dupes um, or duplicates. And uh, you see a lot of uh, Stanley dupes out there right now. Um, the re- one of the reasons that Stanley tumblers became popular is because the combination of like being able to sit in a car cup holder holding a, a large volume of liquid and then having a handle on them. Um, so they're easier to grip for people with smaller hands. Like that combination of things was just really good for people with smaller hands. A lot of women have smaller hands. So, but those are not like proprietary features. Yeah. So tons and tons of other companies um, have made their own version of this tumbler. Um, and you can get them at, at all kinds of price points. And most of them work pretty well. Like the, the technology to keep, to keep water cold is not, is not proprietary. N- none yeah. of these physical features are. So you've got options. Kay in Larchmont Village says cabbage patch dolls. We were selling fake ones because you couldn't get the real ones. Kay, thanks so much. Well, I still stick with my Contigo uh, Old KPCC coffee mug because it doesn't have a handle, but there's something about the curve I find kind of sensuous. I'm probably revealing too much, but uh, I continue to wear out my Contigo mug. Daryl in Lancaster said, rockets, people would put them on the car. They were chrome. We used them on our bicycles. In the shape of a rocket, we got all different colors of them. This has sure been fun. Thank you so much. And Amanda Mull of The Atlantic, who writes the column Material World, thank you for being with us again. From all of us at AirTalk, have a great day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.